0: Today's selection from Calvert Library's digital collection is Murder Trending by Gretchen McNeil. One. The instant Dee Guerrera peeled open her eyelids and gazed around the dimly lit warehouse, she knew she was screwed. Fifty million people are about to watch me die. She lay on the concrete floor, its chill permeating her clothes, and recalled the insanity that had landed her here. Three weeks ago, the most important things in her life had been college applications and securing a date to the prom. Then, the body. The trial. She'd hardly had time to process what had happened before she'd found herself sitting in a courtroom, listening to a jury find her guilty of first-degree murder. Was that this morning? Yesterday? Dee tried to remember how much time had passed since the verdict, but her mind was fuzzy. Her breathing labored, as if she'd been drugged. The bailiff. As the judge read her sentence, she'd heard the bailiff come up behind her. She'd expected to be escorted back to her cell, but instead felt a hand on her wrist, a pinch on her arm. It must have been a needle. She'd been rendered unconscious before they hauled her off to Alcatraz 2.0. Alcatraz 2.0. She'd heard the judge say it, but she still could hardly believe it. That sentence was usually reserved for the most infamous of convicted killers. Mobsters. Mass murderers. Terrorists. Assassins. They were notorious. They were dangerous. They got good ratings. Dee was just a 17-year-old nobody who couldn't even throw a punch— let alone stay alive long enough on Alcatraz 2.0 to gain a cult following. Yet here she was, about to be the star attraction on the number one live-streaming show in the country. Yay? Alcatraz 2.0, the suburban island in the San Francisco Bay where convicted murderers were hunted down by government-sanctioned serial killers for America's amusement, had been the brainchild of an anonymous television mogul known only as The Postman. When a former reality star was elected President of the United States, The Postman had used his clout to sell the federal government on the idea of capital punishment as entertainment. Broadcasting the -the over-the-top theatrics of The Postman's psychotic killers, each with their own thematic brand of murder, not only reminded citizens of what awaited them if they broke the law, but kept them glued to their screens— where they were less likely to break said laws in the first place. The Postman app had been a runaway success. Fans could watch 24-7, cycling through a range of live camera feeds from all over the island, inmates at home in their apartments, at work on Alcatraz 2.0's Main Street, and, of course, the murders. A double doorbell notification alerted users of a kill in progress, which they could watch live or in a variety of replays on the app. Users spiked videos to show their appreciation, and before long, all the Postman's killers had their own fandoms, forums, merch, video games, and RPGs, plus the lucrative betting markets, all controlled by Postman Enterprises, Incorporated. The Postman's killers were media-driven celebrities, just like the president, though they were faceless, masked. There were even conspiracy theory web series devoted to speculation about the killer's secret identities. Were the Hardy Girls actually minivan-driving soccer moms? Didn't gassy Al's voice sound like the announcer on The Price is Right? The whole thing was fucking nuts. But while all of Dee's friends, and even her stepsister Monica, had been obsessed with the postman... Dee had refused to watch. In fact, just hearing the telltale ding-dong, ding-dong notification triggered a full PTSD panic attack as Dee internalized the inmate's fear and instantly relived the six days she'd spent trapped in a white, windowless room by a deranged kidnapper when she was 11 years old. So, yeah. Dee loathed everything about the postman, even if technically it was justice served. That had been the main selling point of the postman. Justice. But was it really delivered? Dee's trial for Monica's murder had been a complete joke, from dubious DNA evidence to a psychiatrist who'd only interviewed Dee once, then testified that she'd suffered from a deep-seated jealousy of and hatred for her stepsister. Total bullshit. But the jury didn't think so, which had landed Dee in one of the postman's kill rooms. Dee had thought she'd get at least a few weeks to settle into her life on the island. Didn't most inmates hang around for a while until the audience became invested in their stories, personas, jobs, and intra-island relationships? Crap. Dee should have paid more attention to the postman app when she'd had the chance. At least then, she'd have seen some knowledge of what she was in for. Now, she'd have to rely on what she'd learned from Monica, or picked up during her trial, when she'd been forced to watch a non-stop Alcatraz 2.0 feed in her prison cell. Well, she knew one thing for sure. One of the postman's psychos was about to shed her blood. Who would it be? Would she end up as the main ingredient in one of Hannah Ball's cannibalistic casseroles? Or starring in a Cecil B. de-violent, porn recreation of Gone with the Wind? Was Gucci Hangman at that very moment constructing a designer noose for her neck, expertly crafted to match her complexion and outfit and the latest trends from the New York Fashion Week, while it slowly strangled the life out of her? Or, was Molly Mauler about to flood the room with water and piranhas and make her choose death by suffocation or mastication? No. Wait. She'd seen Molly kill with piranhas just last week. A bank robber who'd knocked off a security guard or something. So, no piranhas. Jellyfish, maybe? Or sea snakes? Was that even a thing? With a heavy sigh, Dee pushed herself to her feet and took stock of her situation. She glanced down at her clothes and realized that her orange prison jumpsuit had been replaced by a floor-length ball gown of iridescent pale blue tulle and satin with a pair of clear lucite kitten heels on her feet, an outfit fit for a princess, which meant… crap. She was about to be Prince Slicer's next victim slicer was the worst not only did he chase his victims through booby trap riddled mazes but he made them dress up like cartoon princesses while he hunted them down and skewered them with an arsenal of increasingly large and bizarre cake knives Dee spun around looking for the mirror slicer always left one for his victims to see what twisted fairy tale she was about to relive the cracked pane was ten feet away hanging from a rusty nail on the wall. Blue dress, black choker, elbow-length gloves, matching sparkly headband, and her dark brown hair had been twisted into a bun. Cinderella? A blonde housemaid? Seriously? He couldn't even pick a brunette? This sucks on so many levels. Slicer's last victim had been done up as Rapunzel, complete with an elaborately long wig that the poor girl kept tripping over as Slicer came in for the kill. Monica had been obsessed with her death, watching it over and over again as Rapunzel crawled away, pathetically begging for mercy. Immediately, hashtag slowcrawl trended on the postman feed as millions of people critiqued Rapunzel's performance. What would Dee's death include? Hashtag explodingpumpkins? Hashtag killer mice. So freaking humiliating. Bad enough, she was seconds away from getting a 12-inch blade through the sternum, but she had to trend as well. Still, Dee knew better than to fight back. There would be no escape, no appeal. There never was an after Alcatraz 2.0 sentence, and Dee didn't stand a chance against the postman's killers. Even badass MMA fighter Nancy Wu had only lasted four months. No, the most Dee could hope for was to put on a good show in her final moments, maybe sell some merchandise from the Postman's e-store to help her dad and stepmom with the legal bills. So, best case scenario, t-shirts depicting her mangled corpse... A smartphone case sporting her skewered Cinderella silhouette and the hashtag a death is a wish your heart makes. A shot glass shaped like a cracked slipper. The world was so messed up. Footsteps broke the silence of the warehouse, jarring D back to reality. It's starting. Glancing around, D saw that she was in a small chamber, walls on all four sides, lit by a single spare bulb suspended above her head. In each shadowy corner, a red dot of light indicated a live camera filming her every move, and to either side, dark, narrow corridors snaked off in opposite directions. Slicer's footsteps were coming from her right, which meant she was supposed to run the other way, like a good, convicted killer. Because maybe you really are one. Stop it, Dee said out loud, clenching her fists by her side. You didn't kill Monica. It wasn't the first time that doubt about her innocence had nagged at her. Doctors had warned Dee's dad that she might have been more scarred from her childhood abduction trauma than anyone realized. And then, after hearing Dr. Farouk's testimony... Dee's eyes welled up, and she bit her lip hard enough to draw blood as she tried to fight back the tears. You didn't kill her, she repeated silently, no matter what they say. And then something snapped. Why should Dee be the victim here? The country wanted to see blood, but why did it have to be hers? Prince Slicer had brutally murdered dozens of people, which in Dee's mind made him more deserving of justice served. Besides, if she died, there would be no one left to find Monica's actual killer. That was something worth fighting for, wasn't it? Dee didn't run. She didn't flee blindly down the pitch-black hallway, stumbling toward whatever sadistic traps Slicer had laid for her. Instead, Dee grabbed the only thing she could use as a weapon, the mirror. She ripped it off the wall, the decrepit nail on which it had hung clanging to the concrete floor, and waited beneath the single suspended light bulb. A figure emerged from the corridor. Prince Slicer was dressed all in white, crisp, straight-legged pants, shiny patent-leather shoes, and a wide-shouldered coat bedecked with gold buttons and matching epaulets. He was Cinderella's prince, just like the cartoon character Dee had loved growing up. But instead of a glass slipper, he gripped a nasty, serrated knife in his hand, and his face was obscured by an enormous pair of night-vision goggles. Oh, so he'll be able to see in the pitch-black maze, but I won't. Coward. It seemed so cheap, so ridiculously lopsided. A kitten versus a cheetah. Except that Dee had seen enough Hollywood blockbusters to know that this cheetah had a weakness. Print Slicer stared at Dee from the shadows, head cocked to the side, as if he was confused by her lack of abject panic. She wondered if he worried about the rankings of this video. Prince Slicer was pretty popular, but even he wanted to make sure each and every kill got a high number of spikes to up his profit-sharing potential. So Dee's refusal to play along had to be worrisome. Good. Fuck this guy. I'm not a toy. He flicked his head towards the opposite corridor, prompting Dee to run, but there was no way in hell she would plunge recklessly into the darkness. She shook her head defiantly from side to side. Prince Slicer sighed, epaulets sagging as his shoulders drooped. The body language reeked of irritation, though he never said a word. This time, he pointed the blade at the hallway, like a parent punishing a child. Go to your room. Now. Screw you, Dee said. That did it. Prince Slicer lowered his chin, his goggled eyes boring a hole right through her, and marched across the room. Dee barely had time to react. She took two steps back until the mirror was directly under the light. Then she angled it to reflect the overhead bulb and aimed the concentrated beam at Prince Slicer's night vision goggles. Shite, she heard him say. No one had ever heard Prince Slicer's voice, and D imagined that hashtag Slicer Speaks would be trending within seconds. But she didn't have time to ponder the newest mega-hit hashtag. Slicer shielded his eyes with his arms and charged. D dodged just as he slashed at her face with the menacing blade, missing her by inches. She darted out of the way and kicked at the pristine white legs of his costume. He stumbled. And as Dee swung around, she cracked the mirror against the back of his head. Prince Slicer sprawled onto the floor, momentarily flailing his arms and legs. Then, all went deathly still. Except for the blood pooling beneath his body. Well, shit. If you enjoyed this chapter and are hungry for more, this title is available as an ebook through Libby by Overdrive. If you're enjoying Book Bites, please don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if there are books or genres you'd like to hear, email us at calvertlibrarybookbites at gmail.com. Visit calvertlibrary.info for more information, and stay tuned for more Book Bites.